Welcome to the Supio Podcast, the podcast series for the Center for Education Policy and Equalizing Opportunities at UCL's Institute for Education. In today's episode, Dr. Sam Sims, Research Fellow at Supio, speaks to Professor Zofie von Strom from the Hungry Mind Labs in the University of York about her research on intellectual curiosity and pupil achievement. So we're joined on the podcast today by Sophie von Stum, who's a professor of psychology uh, in the education department at the University of York. And Sophie's interested in questions such as uh, how children's early life experiences or our genetics or our personality traits affect cognitive development and academic achievements. So Sophie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Sophie, I first became aware of your research uh, when I was giving a talk up at the University of York, actually, uh, back in February this year. And we chatted briefly after the seminar. And then on the train home, I read your uh, 2011 article from Perspectives on Psychological Science, co-authored with Benedict Hell and uh, Thomas Chamorro Premisic, called The Hungry Mind, Intellectual Curiosity is the Third Pillar of academic performance. I thought it was an absolutely fascinating paper uh, in which you ask the question, is intellectual curiosity a core determinant of academic performance? And um, you know, being an education researcher, I thought this was uh, extremely sort of interesting and um, eye-catching paper. Uh, so your paper describes intellectual curiosity as the third pillar of academic performance, as I said. First things first, what are the other two pillars of academic performance and how much do they matter? Well, the other two pillars are the traditional predictors of academic performance um, that we tend to think of in psychology and education. And the first one is ability or capacity or intelligence, um, how much a student uh, or a pupil can learn. And we tend to assess that domain with maximum performance tests That means we try to assess how much someone really can do, how much capacity they have. And the second pillar is a behavioral tendency, and that's a tendency to work hard on a problem. And we know this by the term conscientiousness um, or grit, um, but essentially both terms describe a very similar trait dimension, and that is to be organized, um, to have a certain level of ambition, Uh, to persist with problems in the face of difficulty and to try and get to the bottom of a problem and solve it and to complete a task in a given time frame, meeting a certain level of expectations. Okay, and and what sort of, what's the strength of the relationship between uh, those two pillars that you've just described and broadly speaking, how well people do in exams and in education? Well, both are strong and very important predictors of exam performance, but they're actually not related to one another. So it turns out that being smart is a strong predictor of doing well in an exam, but it has nothing to do with how hard you actually work. And we suspect that it has something to do with a hidden relationship in the way that if you're very clever, you don't have to work that hard in order to achieve a good outcome on an exam. But if you're not that clever, you have to work very hard in order to achieve the same results. Yet, if you're clever, you also know that working hard will get you better results. So ultimately, I think it's a very complex, possibly interactive relationship, and we haven't yet really cracked 
what the exact nature of that association is within people. But we do know that when we look at between people's differences, that there's no correlation that emerges between being smart and being hardworking. Okay, very interesting. And so, so there are clearly some other things that matter for academic achievement. For example, um, there's a pretty solid finding in the, in the economics of education literature that pupils who are exposed to more effective teachers tend to do better. So just to contextualize this three pillars idea, what's the sort of scope of what you're talking about there? Well, when we're talking about effect sizes, um, we, we would uh, typically argue that um, intelligence correlates with academic performance on average, that is across studies of different sizes and across school years um, at about 0.5. Um, so that it explains, let's say, about 25% of the variance in children's exam performance. Um, conscientiousness often rivals that in effect size, meaning that it is really a, a very important second dimension or dimension of personality of behavioral tendency that explains almost the same amount of intelligence, uh, the same amount as intelligence does. And then if you look at teaching effectiveness or school quality, we often observe much smaller effect sizes. And part of this is not to say that teachers are unimportant or that school quality doesn't matter, but in order for school quality to have an effect, a student needs to be able to maximize the opportunity that that school affords. And that in psychological science or measurement tends to always fall back, statistically speaking, onto the individual student. So by and large, we tend to account for more variance if we study the characteristics of the student when we try to predict exam performance than when we study features of the environment of that student, including the school quality or, or the teacher effectiveness. Okay, yeah, that's useful. So you're talking about the sort of most uh, important influences quantitatively. Um, but you're not sort of implying by that that these other things make no difference, only that they make a smaller difference. They make a smaller difference and their difference is less direct in the way that you, we have to consider the response of the student to um, what is offered in educational provision. Um, it, there's no use in giving someone the greatest teacher if they can't hear that teacher or understand that teacher or be with that teacher. So the, the student needs to bring... Um, uh, what we would call their, their capacity or their, their attitude, um, their, their learning style orientation to the table in order to use the educational resources that are provided. Sure, that's useful, thank you. Okay, so that brings us on to the third pillar in the framework, which is intellectual curiosity. What is it? How do we define it? Well, intellectual curiosity is really the hunger for knowledge. Um, it's a desire to learn more about a subject and to learn more in an academic sense. So to read around, to explore an idea, to toy around with abstract notions in your head, to ask difficult questions and to seek out difficulty and challenges in an intellectual sense. Um, we think of it as one domain of curiosity. So being curious can be being interested in knowledge or being hungry for, for intellectual insights but it can also be being hungry about experience, about trying out things, about tasting, feeling things, hearing things. And those we would um, think less of in terms of intellectual curiosity and more in terms of 
perceptual curiosity or openness to experience. And so perceptual curiosity really refers to trying things out with all the different senses that you have, including listening to your inner self, being attuned to your emotions, um, being interested in, in observing different emotions in you and experiencing these emotions. And that's a very separate domain from being intellectually curious, which is more about learning things, mastering things, gaining expertise in things. Mm, yeah. And psychologists often study things we can't directly observe, for example, uh, personality types. Uh, and as a result, they spend quite a lot of time worrying about or studying uh, where the different psychological constructs, earlier we mentioned the examples of grit and conscientiousness, might actually be uh, the same thing, uh, kind of masquerading under two different names. So what other constructs are there that are similar to intellectual curiosity and how far has psychology as a field got in kind of disentangling those uh, potentially different ideas? You're absolutely right. There are many, many different constructs that map onto the space of curiosity or the trait uh, domain of curiosity. And um, it, it sometimes seems to me that psychologists uh, like to invent new names um, <laughs> for constructs that are largely related to what already exists, but have a slightly innovative touch to it. Um, and what we can do in curiosity is we can really map out that space into three principal domains. The first one being um, intellectual curiosity or epistemic curiosity, the hunger for knowledge. The second one being openness to experience or perceptual curiosity, the hunger for experience. And then there's a third domain that we think of, and that is being interested in people. And we call that social curiosity. And we use slightly different instruments to assess each of these domains. So for example, um, intellectual curiosity uh, items on, a, on, an, on an assessment test will focus on your preference for engaging in difficult topics, uh, reading around, having uh, lots of ideas that you like to think about, um, uh, engaging in philosophical challenges and these sort of things. Whereas uh, assessments for openness to experience more focus on uh, the perception of beauty in the world around you, or if you like to eat different foods, or if you like to travel the world and see different cultures and places. And assessments for social curiosity ask about um, the extent to which you're interested in knowing what motivates other people. So it's important here to differentiate it from gossip or from uh, uh, you know, snooping around people. That's not what is meant here, but it's more, if you think about the principal characteristic that every psychologist should have, it is social psychology. We should be interested in thinking about what drives other people why do they do what they do? And where does that come from? And so when you have these different assessments of these different domains of curiosity, uh, you tend to find that they're positively correlated, suggesting that there is an underlying general dimension of curiosity, which is not a huge surprise, because we would expect that someone who likes to read a lot about the world and who's interested in people is also interested in exploring different places. So they do yeah. tend to come together. But then there's variants that's specific to each domain. And what we find is that they predict different behaviors. And from that, we can infer that there are actually really meaningful differences in these trait dimensions. 
So for example, a lot of uh, work in my lab has looked at um, using uh, intellectual curiosity as a predictor of learning success, but moving that learning success outside of the classroom. So we were wondering about what does it matter if you're intellectually curious as an adult when you're no longer in university or in school? How does it influence how much you learn compared to openness to experience, for example, that other domain of curiosity? And what we find um, across many different studies using different methods uh, and different samples is that actually openness to, to experience is the more important predictor of learning success in adulthood than intellectual curiosity. And we think the reason is that openness to experience captures that general broad curiosity for all aspects of life, whereas intellectual curiosity tends to kick in in situations that are signposted for intellectual pursuits or learning. So when you say to someone, this is a really hard topic and you can like, work yourself tired reading about this and it's complicated and only the smartest people will understand it and you have to put a lot of effort into it, it will attract people who have intellectual curiosity. If you say, here's a silly website, play around with it, people with intellectual curiosity tend to stay away from it. They're like, this is silly. Why would I waste my time on silly things? This is not going to give me intellectual satisfaction. And so what happens as a consequence is that people with greater openness to experience tend to maximize their learning opportunities better because they find learning opportunities in all situations, not only in intellectually framed ones, but they also learn stuff when they go to the supermarket because that just happens what they want to do. Mm, very interesting. And it seems to me in general that um, in this literature where there are sometimes um, findings that are in tension with each other or it feels like we haven't got to the bottom of what's going on, the type of things we're asking people to learn about um, and the corresponding assessments of those learnings uh, seem like they play an important part in explaining some of those um, divergent findings. So I've, I've read your uh, 2018 paper, uh, Better Open Than Intellectual, which I think um, it lines up with what you were saying there very nicely, um, where you're setting people these kind of uh, well, some of them are very open-ended and some of them are slightly more guided learning tasks and then assessing the knowledge that people have gained from doing those different tasks, um, which seems to me to be quite a different type of kind of learning challenge uh, and type, a different type of material being assessed perhaps than, uh, for example, academic study in a school setting or, or in a university setting. Uh, do, you, do you have any further reflections on that? Uh, yes, I think it, it makes a difference um, what kind of learning situation we're talking about. So um, it, we, we tend to uh, refer to this as situational press. Um, and what it means is that in some situations, um, we have to perform or learn. And then these are situations of high situational press. And um, then there are situations where we basically can roam freely and um, learning is more a behavioral tendency or, or, or a choice um, because the situation has low press. Um, in situations of high press, we know that um, the first two pillars, hard work and intelligence, tend to have greater predictive validity for learning outcomes or achievement. 
Um, whereas in situations of low press, we see that things like interest and curiosity start to become more important because they rely on the fact that you have time and opportunity to explore and you don't have that in high press situations. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And um, when I was doing my A-levels, uh, age 17 and 18, uh, there was a qualification which I think has now been abolished called general studies which um, I think a lot of sixth form colleges and schools uh, encourage their pupils to take on the grounds that it would increase their points in certain league tables. Um, perhaps less so because they thought it was a, a useful thing for pupils to study. Um, and I went to, I think, probably five to 10% of the lectures for this and ended up getting a really good mark, not because I had you know, engaged deeply with the content presented to us in general studies, but because the type of stuff it was examining was the sort of stuff that, you know, as a slightly sad teenager, I was reading about in The Economist or, you know, the newspaper. Um, and so that seems to me a sort of extreme case of that, of how the way we measure these things affects the predictive validity of, you know, intellectual curiosity, for example. Okay. Um, so how much do we know uh, about how much uh, intellectual curiosity predicts academic performance and in particular I'm thinking of performance in you know GCSEs and A-level type examinations traditional academic examinations. Mm. Um, we, we know actually we know more about uh, university level exams and university level education um, so from that uh, paper that we did um, back in 2011 uh, on, on looking at intellectual curiosity as a pillar of academic performance, um, we uh, reviewed a lot of literature and we basically used meta-analytic coefficients, most of which were derived from samples of university students, mm. um, to test the extent to which intellectual curiosity uh, predicted um, academic achievement in university. And in that study, we find um, overall, we found a modest effect size. Um, so we had three predictors that we looked at. The first one was intelligence. The second one was conscientiousness or working hard. And the third one was intellectual curiosity. And the three of them together accounted for about 25% of the variance. And half of that was due to intelligence. And the other half was due to personality traits, including conscientiousness and intellectual curiosity. Um, now, this effect size is relatively modest, um, which is owed to the fact that we were working with meta-analytic coefficients. Um, but many primary studies um, that collect original data find greater effect sizes for intellectual curiosity. For example, a few years back, uh, Thomas Shamara Pramutsik, who's also a co-author on the uh, third pillar paper, um, did a longitudinal study of undergraduate students at UCL, and they assessed them on intelligence and personality and intellectual curiosity um, in the first week of their studies. Um, and then they followed them over the course of three years uh, and assessed their um, essay grades, their exam grades, their participation grades in seminars, and eventually their, their third year dissertation. And what they found was that intelligence accounted for a tiny amount of variance, uh, 
which is probably due to the fact that um, all these students attended the same university. Yeah. So they're very much selected for IQ. And so you have a, a smaller amount of variance in that factor or in that predictor. And then they added personality and the prediction went up from sort of 1% of the variance for intelligence to five, 6% in addition with the big five. So the big five personality traits, which include conscientiousness or hard work. But then the real kicker came when they used the intellectual curiosity variable um, and added that to the models because then the, the amount of variance explains tripled. So intellectual curiosity by itself accounted for about 10% of the variance together with the other predictors for 15 to 20% of the variance across these different assessment outcomes of academic performance. Mm. And that really... Um, reiterates or emphasizes the point that I was trying to make earlier. Um, intellectual curiosity is something that plays out over space and time. So if you have a three-year undergraduate program, um, it makes perfect sense that someone who's inclined to learn more um, will maximize this opportunity to a greater extent than let's say someone who is intellectually less curious but wants a good exam or wants to do well and simply works for the assignments at the time to achieve the best grade possible in the most efficient way of studying. Fascinating. Uh, and there's, there are also interesting questions here about the predictive validity or, or the predictive power of uh, intellectual curiosity in different stages of education, for example. You mentioned there that you've got this sort of range restriction issue such that, uh, you know, the, the pupils that end up studying at UCL probably all have quite high IQs anyway, which kind of makes the correlation uh, smaller. Uh, whereas at schools, you've got a wider range of IQ, uh, which would make the correlation look bigger. Uh, but there are also interesting things around, you know, pupils have chosen to study a specific subject at university, uh, which, you know, might be something, an area in which they already have some knowledge and curiosity anyway. Uh, and I think no, it, 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 there, there are also differences across stages in the measurement, the quality of measurement of attainment. I mean, if the average um, psychometrician looked at how, uh, you know, uh, undergraduates work was assessed and graded uh, in universities, they'd probably be pretty disappointed. Whereas at least for subjects like maths, for example, at school, we really do quite a good job of measuring uh, pupil attainment. So I just think that's a, there's an interesting kind of underexplored avenue for this research there. Uh, so I can imagine that if teachers are listening to this now, um, they might be thinking, okay, is there anything I can do to sort of foster more curiosity in my pupils since it seems to be you know, strongly related to how well pupils do in exams. Um, but there's a more general question if we zoom out for a second, which is how malleable is curiosity? I mean, people working in psychology and particularly in the in the field of individual differences tend to think of a lot of things uh, as being kind of very stable over time at least kind of rank order stable in the case of um, personality traits whereas psychologists by contrast uh, sorry economists by contrast tend to think about everything as kind of just being some sort of type of skill which can be invested in if we just work out how to do it correctly I mean, what do we know about the malleability of intellectual curiosity in pupils? It's a good question, but it's a difficult one to answer in the way that um, a lot of 
a lot of what we know about the malleability of intellectual curiosity is based on assumption rather than on strong empirical evidence. Mm. And we know that children in principle like to learn and that in principle they will explore uh, topics and opportunities that are offered to them. So on a very, very principle level, um, if we want to increase curiosity, we should um, ensure that children know that free exploration is valued and we should offer them the opportunities to do so. And that means um, either in time or in uh, resources, and I mean by that um, to offer different topics to explore, um, for example, to offer different sports, different musical instruments, uh, different uh, knowledge content, um, different topics to work on. Um, and the third part of it is to ensure that working on it is exactly just that, working on it, and is not associated with mastery or failure. So mm. the moment that um, we associate um, a topic with a, with a standard that a child has to achieve, the child is very much aware of making that standard or not. And if you don't make it and you have failed, that will dampen your sense of exploration because you will learn, I'm clearly not good at this because I didn't do it right. So I shall either do something else in future or revisit my approach and that is the exact opposite of free exploration yeah. um, when we think about curiosity as a, as a systematic uh, when we think about systematic change of curiosity uh, most of the work um, that uh, takes place using uh, something similar to a randomized control trial actually happens in professional organizations or companies Right. Um, and the reason is that they caught on to the fact that curiosity is an important trait, um, especially for teams that are working in an innovative space or trying to solve problems um, that haven't existed before and that, that require taking different perspectives, um, taking different approaches and considering different aspects um, of the same topic. And what we see in those studies is that um, there are systematic ways in which we can foster curiosity of employees in those teams. Uh, for example, through again giving them time, i.e. having reserved time during the week where everybody's encouraged to work freely. So there's no, um, no expectation associated with it, what comes out of it or what topic you're working on or with whom you're working on. Um, Regular exchange tends to be a second one to encourage communication between team members, especially team members who don't, on average, work closely together, so that you bring in uh, an aspect of novelty or different perspective that can enrich um, the other person's or uh, people's perspective and um, to sort of create new insights and approaches together to solving problems. Mm, that's very interesting. So there are these uh, environmental things uh, that can be introduced that have a measurable effect on curiosity, but the research is essentially limited to workplaces at the moment. Yes, very much. So part of the reason is that especially in the UK, um, teachers are very burdened already uh, with coping with the demands 
that are placed on them by the education system. So at, at present, I often feel that there's little room for psychology researchers to go into schools, have conversations with teachers, and then work together on implementing interventions or trying to um, increase students' curiosity. Um, and that's nobody's fault, really, or a, or a lack of will. Um, but it's simply that resources are very tight these days. And if we were to tackle problems um, using research, uh, it doesn't tend to be curiosity that comes on top of the list. Right. Yeah, this seems like a nice to have. Yeah, that raises two th thoughts for me. One is that, um, you know, we talked earlier about, or you, you mentioned about, uh, you know, as effective as a teacher might be, unless they have... Um, unless their pupils um, have the sort of capacities to engage with their effective teaching, um, there's only so much that can be achieved there. But it seems like in principle, uh, or in theory, um, you could imagine a situation in which one of the ways in which teachers are effective is through their contribution to pupils' curiosity. And, you know, it would essentially be the principle of... Um, give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day or give a man a rod and you, he can feed his family forever kind of thing uh because you know if you're able to genuinely create curiosity amongst pupils uh then they will go off and you know the hungry mind will work to further their learning in that way so it seems like this is a although it's uh something that's difficult to pull off given the the um you know the, the many demands placed on teachers it seems to me like a sensible thing to explore, given the state of the existing evidence. Very much so, especially in a time when we become more and more lifelong learners. If we think about our future professional careers, um, many of us will change job um, and our jobs will change. Some will disappear, new ones will emerge. Uh, we are constantly exposed to using new tools uh, new systems uh, to engage with new materials. We have an explosion of knowledge around us in all sorts of areas. Um, in fact, it is so much that it's easy to feel overwhelmed these days. And being curious can help to navigate in this world and to adapt to the new challenges that arise. Mm. Sophie, that's a fascinating conversation. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us this afternoon. And I look forward to uh, seeing how your research develops in this area in future. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure to talk to you.